Hello, and welcome to Just a Fashion Minute with me, David M. Watts. This is more than a podcast, it's a movement. A call to redefine fashion and spotlight the talent that's shaping its future. This is Just a Fashion Minute with me, David M. Watts. On today's episode, we're joined by Karen Franklin, where we will be discussing inclusion in the fashion industry and often the lack thereof. Karen is a well-known fashion commentator, activist and journalist. She is also a member of the Order of the British Empire, MBE, reflecting her significant contributions to the industry. And as always, we'll get some top tips from our expert for how our younger fashionistas can find their way into the industry. But as always, let's kick the show off with my Just a Fashion Minute Roundup. Having been ousted from the top job at Gucci, where his creative magic turned the brand into a 10 billion euro a year in revenue, Alessandra Michaela might be back in the fashion firmament, this time changing sides from Caring-owned Gucci to LVMH-owned Fendi. It has been suggested Michaela was seen, or so staff WhatsApp messages say, in the Fendi Women's Wear Studios recently, and it's believed he could be taking up the creative director job currently held by Kim Jones. Kim Jones, who also has Dior men's on his roster. Alessandra Michaela could be a good choice for Fendi, and Fendi Women's Wear needs it, as Kim Jones is really not bringing it, in my opinion. There's no doubt that Alessandra Michaela is a force of fashion and he gets a huge amount of credit for what his creative vision brought to Gucci when it needed it most. After Tom Ford exited Gucci, it had fallen into the long grass with a number of creative directors that couldn't bring the Ford magic. Fendi Womenswear, currently headed up by Kim Jones, really needs a new injection of creative flair, and Michaela could be the right person for the job. We wait to hear if the rumors are true. Men's Autumn Winter 24 season has brought a rather interesting mix of clothes and fashion to the catwalk. There is no doubt that the quiet luxury theme is continuing, with so many brands developing elevated classics in luxurious fabrics. But is it really fashion show worthy? The menswear season has been quite polarized with Autumn Winter 24 collections. There has been a big rise in a more classic and heritage tailoring offering in beautiful luxe fabrications and then the needle tips all the way across to high fashion avant-garde offerings such as J.W. Anderson's Loewe and his eponymous menswear label. Of course, Anderson is currently the golden child of fashion who is bringing the Midas touch to Loewe, where he's creative director. Listening to him talk about his process, it suggests he doesn't really care what people think and sometimes wants to shock them and shake things up. He certainly can get people talking during fashion month. He's also turned Loewe from what was a relatively small, fusty Spanish brand into a half billion a year euro sales luxury lifestyle brand. Balma also returned to the catwalk with a menswear collection that was very edgy and experimental. Lots of monochrome polka dot prints and a collaboration with Ghanaian visual artist and photographer Prince Gayasi, known for his super saturated bright colors. Of course, Olivier Roustang closed his menswear show with Naomi Campbell apparently a long-time friend, which caused quite a ripple in the audience. US men's brand Todd Snyder presented his collection at Pitti in Florence to great acclaim. Pitti starts the menswear season in January, where hundreds of menswear brands present their collections in showrooms and at trade shows. Schneider is a former Ralph Lauren designer who is not as well known in Europe, but definitely made his presence felt with a brilliant show. 
He's also the creative director for Woolrich, Black Label, which is a brand for those in the know. Schneider's show presented new takes on big coats, tobacco-coloured velvet tailoring that wasn't as formal as the Italian brands, but his American sensibility really comes through in his collections. I suspect this is going to elevate the brand in Europe, and well-deserved it is too. The British menswear brand SS Daily, creative director Stephen Stokey Daily, presented a superb catwalk show in Pitti also this season. The LVMH prize winner of 2022 brings a dandy and frivolous take on men's fashion and excels at knitwear too. The brand is one to watch and news is out, Harry Styles has invested in the brand, which will hopefully be a great push for this worthy designer. He's also a really nice person and we like it when nice people get ahead. The invitation to present your collection on the catwalk at Pitti Uomo is a huge honor for any menswear brand and Daily certainly rose to the challenge. In this case, at the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence. Night shirts with painted fish motifs and military-inspired grey coats all worked really well. Knitwear features a lot in this collection and it was innovative and fun. Let's hope that with new investment in the business by Harry Styles, that it will help to grow awareness and new business for a well-deserved British designer. Another brand that's been all over the news is the caring-owned Gucci. Since Alessandra Michaela exited the business and was replaced by new creative director Sabato De Sarno, the fashion media has been in a quandary as to what De Sarno's creative strategy might be for the 10 billion euro business. His long-awaited debut women's collection for spring-summer 24, shown in Milan, received rather mixed reviews, and his menswear autumn-winter 24 also had a lukewarm reception. There's no question that he designs beautiful tailoring for clothes in beautiful luxury fabrics, but it seems rather commercial. Read that as not very fashion forward. Following on from the maximalist Alessandro Michaela's creative style, which suggested more is more, the collection seems to be understated and a bit staid. So we wait to see what a second women's wear collection will reveal in March. The situation developing at Gucci is definitely splitting the critics and the fashion industry as a whole. Some say that it's just too commercial and doesn't really present any of the magic or creativity of its predecessor. And others suggest that it's a huge juxtaposition to what's gone before and he needs time to bring his own creative take to the house of Gucci. The creative director, Salvador de Sarno, was head of both women's and men's collections at the other luxury house, Valentino, for 10 years so he does have the fashion credibility. However, from reports circulating, he has dismissed the criticisms and mixed reviews of his debut women's wear collection, Spring Summer 24, and says he is redefining and shaping a new era for Gucci. I guess only time will tell. British menswear brand, Martin Rose, can only be described as a rousing catwalk experience for her autumn winter collection that had her guests dancing in the aisles. Known for her reinvention of men's classics, and in spite of having an incredible creative DNA, success has been slow for the eponymous brand. Some cool collaborations and a guest creative director role with iconic British brand Clark's Footwear launching in March, she has consulted for Balenciaga, working alongside the infamous Demna, and is finally getting the recognition she deserves. It was suggested that she was on the LVMH shortlist for the top job at Louis Vuitton menswear, which could have been a really interesting proposition. But as we know, Pharrell Williams got the job. Rose needs the boost, as being a woman of color 
is a rarity in the fashion industry and she deserves the support. I know Martine from when she started out and she's really a lovely person. I'm really hoping to have her guests on the show in the future. The lack of women creative directors in fashion and more pointedly women of colour is a topic that we will be delving into more on other episodes of the show. Fashion really does have a diversity problem and I am going to continue talking about it. Luxury group Richemont have just launched a new beauty division. Beauty is becoming a major category that everyone wants to exploit. Richemont own brands like Alaya, Chloe and Dunhill. So taking beauty, skin hair and fragrance in-house is not a bad idea. It also represents new possibilities for other brands like Cartier in their portfolio. Cartier, skincare and beauty. Not a huge leap, particularly as Cartier is having a golden moment right now with sales booming. Beauty is going through an interesting phase with many more celebrity brands coming to the market. Selena Gomez and Katy Perry to name two. There is also a growth in luxe beauty with brands like Prada re-entering the market, produced at the newly formed luxe division at L'Oreal, who produced the brand under license. For those curious to know, L'Oreal has four different beauty divisions and turned over 38 billion euros in 2022. And one suspects that figure is going to increase in 2023. Where Prada go, others are following with news that Balma under the creative lead of Olivier Rousteing, will also launch beauty in 2024. There's also other news, Caring Beauté Division, with its own brands like Alexander McQueen, one imagines a Bottega Veneta beauty range could also be in the pipeline. So that's my roundup. Karen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. It's my pleasure. Before we get into our conversation, I wonder, Karen, do you have any thoughts on our just a fashion minute roundup this week. I was just thinking about the excitement that there can be and should be. And certainly when I started around shows and you talked about, but, you know, these um, many brands are hedging their bets with luxury. You know, it's more expensive. The craft, the artisanal element is there and we want that. But we also want the drama and the kind of high octane emotional sensation from a show. And I think I got very spoilt beginning in the 80s, as I did, with the way that fashion was presented there, where it was very much um, a kind of whole sensation. There were characters on the catwalk. So I'm just really pleased to hear you talk about Martine Rose and her show that had delivered that level of just excitement and emotional sensation. It was amazing. I mean, it was a very small catwalk, but the models were all kind of throwing shapes and stopping and posing and dancing and voguing. And the people at the audience were going, wild. It was just sensational. And of course, everybody's been talking about it, which is great because she so deserves it. You know, she's been around for a while and has a very interesting take. She's very, very British, but it's totally deconstructed. It's so amazing. And I think in some ways that's kind of held her brand back because you kind of have to really get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think her experience with Demna and Balenciaga and now doing sorts of collaborations has really given her a little bit more of a flavor for, I kind of have to fit it into a bit more of a commercial, inverted commas, box. 
But again, you know, she has a great following. People know her and love her because she's a lovely person. And we want successful women in fashion. We do indeed, David. I'm endorsing that fully. <laughs> Fantastic. With that in mind, we're going to talk about a topic today that is very relevant. Luxury corporations like LVMH, Caring, Richemont are appointing the most senior creative role to men and predominantly white men. But before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about your career in fashion. What is your earliest memory of being interested in fashion? Well, you've got to go right back. I was the oldest of five. The sewing machine was always out. And my mum would make sort of identical outfits. And I didn't want to wear the same as my my younger siblings. And um, let's just remind ourselves that clothes were really expensive back in the olden days. Indeed. Um, and so I got on the sewing machine myself. We'd get sort of care packages of relatives. Go, oh, that poor woman, she's got five children. So these clothes would come in and I would just be customising them, thinking this is, you know, this is the way forward. So, and what I noticed was that at school, I had certain credibility for the way I'd customised my school uniform. And I was a, a very sort of runty little human back in those days and, you know, how to kind of hold your own. I found that I could do it through clothes. I found that it delivered a certain amount of mystique and respect. Oh, what are you wearing? How did you do that? That said, you know, my dad would have to say, you're not going out wearing that, which is obviously a badge of honour for us all. I remember Vivian Westwood actually saying, if people don't say, look at the state of that when I'm walking past, then I haven't done it properly. Um, that's quite that's my mantra. <laughs> good, good, old, good old Viv. Yeah. Tell us, how did you start out in your career? So I went to Kingston School of Art, and um, although I made my clothes, I made clothes for my sisters, I made clothes for my mum, I made curtains, I made all sorts. I was much more interested in observing fashion as a tool, but there was no such thing as fashion media. So I studied graphic design and spent my entire time in the fashion department, photographing, interviewing, making my little magazines. I'd always bought ID magazine. I bought the first issue for 50 pence, having seen it advertised in the back of Vogue, because the creator of ID, Terry Jones, was a former art director of Vogue. And while I was at, at uni, I was sending in pictures of my um, art student friends with their spiky hair and their, you know, their bondage strides and the, or their homemade fashion designs. So um, at the end of show, a friend of mine had got a card on his desk from Terry Jones. I hadn't. I like to think he just didn't see my show because that's just how it how, is. So How it can happen. He just said to me, I don't know why he's given it to me. You would be much better suited. And I'm thinking, yeah, I would actually. So I'm knocking on the door. I turned up for an interview. He literally just went through my portfolio and then said to me, right, I'm going out. Uh, I'm, I'm international art director for Fiorucci. You're a graphic designer. Get on with this 
I'm waiting for a call, so you need to take it because we didn't have answer machines in those days either. That's what I did. I think if I'd have said, oh, I've, you know, meeting someone for coffee, can't do it, I wouldn't have then spent the following six years at ID magazine homing my craft and my excitement around people and identity. What ultimately changed my career path was then moving into television. And then at a, another point, because I think we do all reinvent ourselves, was immersing myself in psychology and academia. Fantastic. And obviously you mentioned television because um, it would be incredibly remiss of me not to talk about The Clothes Show, which changed the world You're of, welcome. of fashion, <laughs> which you did, co-hosted with Jeff Banks for 12 years. Yeah. And, you know, it's not unkind to say you'd have to be of a certain age to remember The Clothes Show. Absolutely. But it was unbelievably successful and it was Sunday it was like prime time like early evening on a Sunday wasn't it it went out and it was the first time almost a little bit like this podcast we hope that you were giving an inside view about every aspect of fashion it wasn't just a fashion show you were going to factories you're talking about textiles you were talking about people and models it, it covered everything in a really kind of newsy but fun and slightly not throw away because it was incredibly well considered, but it was extraordinary and it totally changed the landscape. I think it was a precursor to social media for fashion, mm. if I say so myself. And um, and we're incredibly humbled by the fact that you did it for so long. It was amazing and you should bring it back. <laughs> when I was approached to do the BBC's clothes show, I said, no, thank you. I went for an interview thinking they wanted me to bring lots of young designers onto the show because it, it had been going for six weeks as a, a lunchtime sort of daytime experiment. And that was, you know, that was Jeff making that happen. Mm. Very entrepreneurial man and could see the appetite for it. But I went there and, 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 I'd, and I'd seen it as a very mainstream thing and... I said, I don't really think it's me. I'm much more interested in street style, you know, the sort of 80s self-styling. I'm not interested in the way you're presenting it. And I came back and I said to Terry, yeah, so I went for this interview, um, but I'm not going to do it. And he said, well, actually, it could be very good advertising for us. You know, if you put the strap line Karen Franklin from ID when you appear on the screen. That's all our advertising sorted. And so for two years, I was between ID and the clothes show. But what happened during that time was I fell in love with mainstream Britain. I fell in love with people who were so excited by this fashion industry, who didn't know anything about it, really wanted to learn and take a pride in our own creativity. You, if you ask them to name a designer, of course they reel off a few Italian names, but they didn't know a single British name. They'd never even heard of Paul Smith or Vivian Westwood. And so that sense of introducing our own growing, flourishing industry to not just the UK, we, we sort of accrued 13 million viewers at our kind of high point every week. Which was... In those days... Uh, well, it's massive. Extraordinary. But we also went to the homes of 156 million viewers through BBC World Service. And I like to think that we helped 
put British fashion on the map. You did. Um, you did. So it's a it's a lovely feeling of having, and and still to this day, people will say, "I grew up with you. You were in my home every week," and. You know, when I was an icon, late, thank you, honey. Um, <laughs> I later caught up with Gareth Pugh, Christopher Kane, and they were they were saying it was the only thing that we watched. It made us, it gave us a sense of belonging that there was a world that we could tap into. So it was an ultimate privilege to be part of something, and I stayed there for 12 years, wanting really all the time to broaden people's perception of how they could bring fashion as a tool into their life. Not, you've got to obey these rules, but how do you bring it into your life on your terms? And how do you make your consumer choices count? And who you buy with matters. These were, um, towards the end of the clothes shows run, these were very early days of the fashion industry actually turning from a cottage industry into a more industrialised product. I wanted to just slightly change up the conversation. One of my favourite current quotes is, to all those people who shut the door on my face, I'm coming back to buy the building. Did anybody close the door on your face? I think if you're a freelancer and you're always pitching ideas, then um, you you get very used to rejection. I got very used to putting forward ideas based on you know my belief around representation and inclusion, and we didn't call it in that that in those days. But I was fed up with tall, thin, white, young teenage models representing the you know the the range of hesitate to say consumer. Um, but everyone who loved and wanted to buy into fashion and yet felt like fashion didn't see them, fashion didn't make for them, fashion didn't invite them through the door with its images. So for many years, until I started All Walks Beyond the Catwalk in 2009, which was quite a hardcore campaign for six years to broaden um, the body and beauty ideals that the fashion industry promotes. For many years, I'd say, yeah, I'd love to do your shoot. I'd love to, you know, promote this, but I want to do it on models of different shapes and sizes, different ethnicities. I want to reflect the street as I see it. I want to reflect the people I know who love fashion. And that uh, door was shut repeatedly. It, uh, it was as though there was um, an uncompromising need. Fashion likes to think it's at the vanguard. It likes to think it's always new ideas. Actually, it was really stuck in a very set, formulaic way of, we show fashion on very thin, gaunt young women who look like they're not really here. That's the way we do things. Yes, I can totally understand and relate to that. Very much so. That actually segues beautifully into the topic we're going to talk about today, which is really about inclusion. And stick around because we're going to get into it after the break. This is just a reminder that you're listening to Just a Fashion Minute with me, your host, David M. Watts. Let's get back to the show. Growing up, I didn't see many people who looked like me represented in senior positions in fashion. Uh, This is speaking as a person of colour. Do you share this experience from your perspective as a woman? 
I think what I've certainly noticed is that for women to rise, often they have to mimic male traits in order to reassure men that they can deliver what's already in the workplace. So that goes for gender, that goes for race, that there is a sort of dominant culture way of being. And certainly recruiters have a, a set expectation of the person that they want in the job. They're not open-minded. They don't want to work with the unknown. They want to work with the known. So they want recommendations from their known circle and they want people who fit their expected idea of behaviour, delivery. And so anyone who falls out outside of, let's say, sort of white, Western, heteronormative, masculine presentation has to do extra work to say, I am what you're looking for. So this predominance of white men continues to this day in fashion. Um, do you perceive this as a problem? It's always a problem when we don't have diverse perspectives, when a brand, I mean, look at the mistakes that have been made by massive brands who should know better. The Dolce & Gabbana, just mess, fiasco. in China, um, which cost them billions absolutely. of revenue. Absolutely. Absolutely, because they didn't have members of the team who could point out to them that this is cultural insensitivity. You're not behaving in a culturally competent way, and yet you're expecting to just walk into this market with your European attitudes and your arrogance that this is somehow the, the premium way, the only way, and everybody just bows their head and welcomes you in. Karen, that mess in China with Dodger Gabbana, remind me what, what played out? So they made a campaign, a highly visible, spent a huge amount of money on you know, their entrance into Shanghai. They are the luxury brand that the Chinese have been waiting for. Here comes Europe. And so the visuals were a Chinese model who'd been given chopsticks to eat pizza with. So a whole unstylish mess, as if to say, You've been waiting for us and we're going to show you how to do style. And immediately influenced, quite rightly, said, how insulting, how rude, how arrogant. Um, and they had a big fashion show scheduled and that was immediately cancelled. Product was taken off the shelves and, the, you know, their financial rating plummeted. And of course, you know, based on all of these pro this projected interest in China, they just scuppered themselves and all because they thought their Eurocentric view was sufficient. And and likewise with Prada and their monkey charms. Um, Unreal. All of those presentations show us where wherever there's racism, the um, sort of minstrel face in the on the Gucci pullover, um, that that's a white team. Or it's not a culturally competent team. It's not a team where white privilege is discussed and dismantled and white people acknowledge how little they do know and that we work much more creatively. And there are so many studies to show that. McKinsey is always doing that to show that there's better business efficacy, there's better 
cognitive response when teams are diverse and they're prodding each other in a different way that we all benefit because somebody at some point on in a multi in a million pound campaign can actually stop and go, sorry, whose idea was this and why are we doing this? Because I'd just like to draw to your attention now before it hits the market that this is racist or sexist or this is could be being much more inclusive. Why are we always placing people of colour on the outer edges of pictures but we're centralising the, the white... Um, selfhood of the star player? Why are women often presented as in service to male gaze in fashion, in service uh, as a sexual service provider? I mean, for many years, I've been like, sorry, I don't want to shag you. I want you to just show me the outfit. Don't lean forward with your pre-orgasmic pout clutching your breast to sell me this jacket. I'm a woman looking at woman's clothes on a woman's body. So why have I got male gaze in there? Why is that model actually performing in a way that is inauthentic? Why are you selling us clothes in that way? Why is that? Because it's always been done before. And so that's the part that took me off to my psychology masters because I thought, I'm just actually going to go mad here. It's an issue that continues. You know, it's like, why, why do we think it still carries on today in the 21st century? Pure laziness and lack of understanding the benefits behind the, you know, the camera. I mean, if we just sort of say front of stage, back of stage, but, you know, the creative teams... People want a reassuring environment where everyone thinks like them, they don't have to feel vulnerable about their lack of knowledge, they don't have to feel challenged by someone coming in and going, but why are you doing that? Why are you thinking about it like that? There are all these people who we could include, we could talk to directly just by changing our imagery, just by shifting the words that we're using. And so what I think happens and what we know is in the recruitment process, senior leadership is looking for a confidence, there's a, I saw a brilliant quote on, my daughter had it on her mug, um, may you have the confidence of a mediocre white male. You know, they're looking for that entitlement to be right, that entitlement to feel I belong, that space that is, it's a false confidence, but what it gets done is it gets perceived as competence. So women will repeatedly undermine themselves. When we've got to look beyond the entitled confidence to inhabit the space if we're recruiting, we've got to recognise that, that many people have struggled to get a creative education and that they've not been given the benefits of perhaps a middle class experience, perhaps, you know, being able to be close to London and not have to worry about bills. And so they bring something else. They don't bring perhaps an empty confidence that says, yeah, I can do that. I don't know if I can, but yeah, I can do that, you know, because life is, life is set up to serve me. 
There's an amazing quote um, by Edward O'Brien, who's a sociobiologist, who said, we have paleolithic brains and emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. And what he was pointing to with that was that our brain is always seeking out threat. Our brain operates from a position of vulnerability. And so we perceive threat in the unknown. We, per we perceive threat because there is uncertainty. Uncertainty is a natural human state. You know, that's a grounded reality position uh, and one which offers up opportunities. But because the brain doesn't like uncertainty and because people in leadership positions want to reduce uncertainty uh, for themselves, they want people who come in and go, I can guarantee this, it's going to look like this, that's going to happen. And so there's an abdication of sort of moral responsibility mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in that, well, we're paying you a shed load of money to do it that way, take it away. And I'm just banking everything on your entitled confidence. Would you have any advice for women, younger women entering into fashion nowadays, given that, you know, should they like bang the table? Should they think, you know, fuck it, I'm going to just do what I need to do because I have the skills, I have the education, I have the training, I have the passion, and I'm going to get this job? Or do they still have to run along the rails of those kind of parameters that have been set by a lot of white men? Well, if you're in the game, the, you know, the game has rules. So you're going to learn as you go along, you know, how to bend and shape shift and deliver the best of yourself. For me, um, all the studies are showing people in leadership positions are rushing to improve their emotional intelligence and that the best leaders are transformational leaders who inspire others to do different or better. And that takes empathy and nurturing, approachability. We understand that leaders who are unapproachable are not leading at all because they're just saying, well, what's in my head is as good as it's going to get and I'm not up for new ideas. You talked about studying psychology. What did you take from it that's relevant to our conversation today? It was a really useful personal insight um, because I did cognitive psychology, which is how the brain works, how we, you know, how we respond to ideas, thinking, creativity, memory. Within that then was a whole space for me to unpick bias, unpick racism, unpick sexism based on some of the things that we've discussed, the brain's need for familiarity, the brain's dislike of the unknown. So I was able to forgive myself for having a flawed brain and think, okay, that's how come I have come to came to some of the ideas that need changing. That's how come I can feel vulnerable and really wish I didn't. That's how come I can feel defensive and not like you know, my behaviour. So it gave me an opportunity to sort of self-observe and be hypervigilant. But obviously the course was about much more than that. It was applied psychology, looking at our need to fit into groups, what, what fashion delivers in terms of um, how we use clothes to speak to each other, to present idealised or perfected visions of self, and how we can... With these psychological insights, obviously, it's 
it's really over-researched in terms of consumer psychology. How to manipulate the consumer to get them to respond to something that they don't need. Advertisers have been all over that. But how about um, how we create a more inclusive, pro-social environment and tackle many of the things that you've talked about by using psychology and social science? So in an ideal world, Every fashion creative would recognize this amazing superpower that they have. But it's not just there to make pretty things. It's there to make the world better connected and to bring in all different kinds of people to normalize difference, to normalize different types of beauty um, and different ideas. Fashion can do that. It's just it doesn't choose to at the moment. I could sit here and talk to you for hours and hours, and I hope the listeners have got some insights into just scratching the surface on inclusion. It's been incredibly insightful and really interesting for me to have a chance to sit and talk with you because we don't do this very often. So thank you very much for being on the, on the show today. It's been absolutely fantastic. We're coming to the end of the podcast, um, but before we wrap up, let's just move on to a quick fire round of questions to talk about some fashion moments. What's your most embarrassing fashion moment? One that came to mind was um, having a big audience uh, in a show. Um, thinking back to you know the clothes show days when um, you know it had thousands of people out there and I would step out and I went back in and didn't realise that I was mic'd up and said, just really by way of like, you know, switch the atmosphere, right, thank God I can't wait to get out of these ridiculous clothes. And it just went out <laughs> over the auditorium. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. You never know when you're mic'd up, yeah. as I'm discovering. <laughs> Our next question, fashion, retail. What is your favourite fashion store? Anywhere in the world, anywhere you go, anywhere you recommend. Do you know what? If it's if it's not obvious, I'm only interested in eco humble product. I stopped buying product years and years ago. So I'm sitting here in front of you with um, very highly patched jeans on and um, a, a secondhand garment that I, you know, I'm a, a sort of charity shop or, or ethical ranges. Um, and so I'm not the best person to be promoting more Retail. product. That's perfectly fine. But I have to say, for those people who can see you, you're like something out of a Yoji Yamamoto catalogue. <laughs> Polka dot patches on denim. Amazing. And this, your black shirt dress is extraordinary. So, Self-styling, honey. So, well, you're, you're kind of going back to your back to your roots, aren't you? Where mm -hmm. you started, you just yeah. saw things, changed, recycled, remade, reused. It's fantastic. Slightly more serious note, just to close. Any unsung heroes in fashion that you'd like to give a shout out to today? 
I'd like to flag up the work that Safi and Minnie has done over 30 years of working in fashion on in an, an ethical space, sort of creating a, a template for how you can do it. She took me to Bangladesh and having visited workers in Dakar after the collapsed Rana Plaza factory and hearing their stories and the appalling workspaces that, that they inhabited and live spaces, and then going to a fair trade compound where people were living their best life. You know, their children were going to school on the compound and they had autonomy. They enjoyed what they were doing. They were proud of their product. And she's been there showing companies how to do this since forever. She has worked in a stealth way. It's not the sort of big glitzy accolades that we often give to our more um, visible designers, but she's a woman of colour who has stuck to her principles and certainly she's influenced the way I approach my fashion practice. Fantastic. Before we close, do you want to tell the listeners how they can follow up with you or how they can see what you do or what you're doing at the moment? Well, um, like everyone else, I'm on Instagram, Franklin on Fashion. And I've been consulting on a documentary that it plays to one of my pet subjects, which is predators in fashion and the objectification of women in fashion imagery going back to male gaze well that's how we've always done it so don't see why we should stop um, but I've actually uh, in my book I uh, worked with a forensic psychologist to take the information of what happens when we're seeing sexualized women in our media all the time what did it do to girl brains what does it do to male brains and what does it do to female social economic and political power even uh, access to legal power um, as in rape statistics which are disarmingly low two percent shocking yeah, yeah i was reading about that recently absolutely yeah. shocking it's been an absolute pleasure having you Karen Franklin, MBE, on the show. And I look forward to talking to you more in the future. Well, good luck with um, this venture. It's a great idea. Thank you. Next week, I'll be talking to Julian Vogel about the changing face of PR and fashion. I'm so excited. Be sure to check it out. Thank you for listening to Just a Fashion Minute with me, David M. Watts. If you haven't already, please give the show a follow on your podcast app and on Instagram. For more information, you can email us at podcast at justafashionminute.com. This show was produced by One Fine Play. Matt Cheney is a series producer. Kazra Ferrugia is a producer and editor. Selena Cristofides is the designer. I have been your host, David M. Watts, and this has been Just Fashion Minute. <laughs>